from uh, Exodus chapter 33. Thirty-four, verse six. It's on page ninety-two. Sorry, in the Old Testament part of your Bible. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants." I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Am I doing the wrong one? I thought it was... I, that's what I... Then I've just read that yeah. again. I thought yeah. I'd done it wrong. Yeah, well, it's my fault. Oh, is it? Yeah, probably. Right. I'll check the blame. 32. I was off to a great start. Sorry, we're on chapter 32. The golden calf. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, 
and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory, it is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control, and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did to the calf Aaron had made. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. 
Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Elaine do a top job for us there. Thank you very much. I just hope Dave doesn't one day say to us, who's on the Lord's side, come and stand with me. Because he's then going to have some appoints on people with swords, isn't he? Um, and I also hope that God doesn't think of us as a stiff-necked people. But maybe all of us are at some time or another. Um, we're just going to sing before the sermon. And it's one, it's a song that's been going through my head for a while. I'm not sure we've ever sung it here, but that doesn't stop us from doing something a bit new. Though I feel afraid of territory unknown. So I'm sure these people were, as well as they're dancing and singing and making golden calves, were a bit afraid. And maybe we're a little afraid of going into territory unknown. Uh, asking people to come and listen uh, to something that's happening. Asking people to come to a picnic even is a bit hard. So... If we could sing this one and then Dave will come um, and bring us the word. Thank you.
I'm sorry, Elaine, to interrupt you, but I thought I can't wait until the end of that passage. <laughs> it wasn't your fault at all. And uh, I had one of those moments when you're thinking, oh, no, I've prepared for the wrong passage. Um, but I don't think we've had a sermon, have we, on Exodus 32? No? Nope? Good. Well, if we have, you're having another one. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, we just want to pause and be quiet uh, before you as we um, just think about this passage. Thank you for this evening's service, for its quiet, reflective opportunity that we have to uh, go deeper into your word. Thank you for this morning, for Julia talking about the Ten Commandments, and thank you that now we can just dig a little bit deeper as we have the time and space to do that. And I pray, Lord, you take my words, but Lord, don't just limit it to my words, Lord. We want to hear your words speaking into our hearts this evening. So please speak, uh, we pray, Lord, and help us to listen. And not just to listen, but to obey what you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Exodus 32. Um, as I said this morning, it's kind of quite nice that this morning we had the, uh, the, the uh, 10 good rules for living well, as um, we heard them described, the Ten Commandments. So this evening's service fits in quite nicely um, to that. Um, so let's start with a rush of impatience. Over the summer holidays, I know many people have been camping. And I know that some people, Anthony was telling me this morning, he went camping in the woods uh, for the first time with a friend. Um, I wonder whether you've ever camped or put a tent up close to a mountain. And have you ever gazed up at the mountain and felt small um, next to that huge mountain? And I wonder if this is how the Israelites felt as they camped in Sinai. In Exodus 19, verse 2, it says, Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. But the people were becoming impatient. It had now been 40 days and 40 nights since they last saw their leader, Moses. After three months of trekking through the wilderness, after leaving Egypt, at last they got a chance to settle and stop and rest. And this would be the place that they would encounter God in a dramatic way. If you take time, perhaps later on, to read Exodus 19, we see how God calls uh, Moses to come up and meet him on the top of the mountain. God comes down, Moses goes up, and they meet. But before this happens, the people have to prepare themselves. They are meeting with a holy God, and they have to understand what that, that means. They are told that they can't even touch the mountain. If they do, they will die. So there's a fence erected to keep God's people um, out of his holy presence. Only Mo Moses goes up the mountain, as we're learning this morning. And what a spectacle it must have been. Fire and smoke and trumpets and loud cracks of thunder, a thick cloud descending on the mountain. But that was all over a month ago, and now nothing is happening. They're just sitting around waiting, and they are tired of waiting. Tired of doing nothing and just waiting for something to happen. I think we all find waiting difficult. I do. And waiting for God seems even harder. Why doesn't God just step in and do something? After all, he's all-powerful. 
It's not a problem for him to do whatever he wants. And yet we have to learn that waiting has a purpose in God's economy. Waiting is part of the plans of God. I wonder if you're waiting for something at the moment. Perhaps exam results, test results, waiting for a partner, waiting to retire, waiting for a health problem to go away. And we see the people in verse 1 of Exodus 32, waiting. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods or a god who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Moses was so long in coming down that the people decided that they would fix things themselves. So they approach Aaron who'd been left in charge, and say to him, come, make us gods. How quickly they were ready to, to, to dispense with Moses. He was history as far as they were concerned. They wanted gods they could touch and feel. Trusting in an, in, in an invisible god was just too hard. They wanted a god they could manage themselves, one you could put on your mantelpiece, put in your suitcase if you're going somewhere, a god that's a bit more manageable, than the God they had been introduced to. But before we're too quick to judge them, isn't that what we do? Don't we prefer a God who fits in with the cultural norms of our day? A God we can package up and present to our friends as culturally relevant? But the Lord isn't like that. He's the same God as the God of Sinai. He hasn't changed. But he has provided us with a way that we can approach him through Jesus. And this is why Exodus is so important. That's why we still read the book of Exodus. Because it instructs us about our salvation. And what it cost God the Father to send the Son. And we need to be reminded, just as uh, the readers of the Narnia tales were by C.S. Lewis when he wrote Aslan isn't a tame lion. We worship a holy God. You can't be tamed. But we see that the people's impatience with God leads to a crisis. And we can't understate how serious this crisis is for God's people. It will lead to the slaughter of thousands of Israelites. In verse, verse 30, Moses says, you've committed a great sin. And at the root of this crisis is impatience with God. As the people make their demands, we see that Aaron agrees to their demands. And he asks them to remove all their gold earrings and jewelry. And you remember when the Hebrew slaves left, when the Israelites left Egypt, um, the local people just started giving them all their jewelry, loading them with it before they left. And God had enabled them to, to plunder the Egyptians. But their insistence on a new God meant they lost what God had provided for them. So Aaron collects up all this gold. He throws it into a furnace. And guess what? Out comes a golden calf. Isn't that a great verse? <laughs> but he does say that he shapes it and he crafts it until he produces this statue of a calf. Or more likely, the commentators say, it will be a young bull. Uh, a God like they had seen the people worship in Egypt. 
And as the people bow down to worship this image of God, they descend into revelry. One commentator says, in scripture, idolatry always leads to immorality. Lose your respect for God and you lose your respect for each other. But while all of this is going on down on the plains, Moses is still up the mountain with God. And God is telling Moses how he wants to come and live among his people. He's already shown them that he's a holy God. And having emphasized his holiness, he now tells Moses that he wants to come and down in and live in the camp with them. The Lord is giving Moses instructions of how to build the tabernacle, a tent which will communicate um, his holiness so that they can worship him respectfully. But instead, they've chosen to represent his presence with a golden calf or a golden bull. And this raises an important question as we see them worshipping this image. Which commandment were they breaking? Was it the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me? Or was it the second, you shall not make yourself an image of the form of anything in heaven or earth? I think I've always thought it was the first, but actually I think now it's probably the second, certainly in the first instance. I'll tell you why. I think they began by asking for gods or a, a god, but Aaron presents them with an image of the Lord because we read that he builds an altar for them to worship this idol as the Lord. The Israelites actually thought they were worshipping the Lord as they danced around this golden calf. Perhaps Aaron thought he was helping them by making an image of God for them to see. He stopped them breaking the first commandment by helping them break the second. Later on, when he's confronted with what he's done, he tries to blame the people. As I said, according to Aaron, he just threw the gold in and out came this calf. But the responsibility for it is clearly placed at his feet. But once again, we shouldn't be too quick to judge Aaron and God's people. Because we too can treat visible things as a substitute for God. It might be a person. It might be a possession. It might even be the Bible itself. We can so easily worship the truth we know about God and we miss the point that the Bible actually leads us to an encounter with God. We can all be guilty of carving our own image of God as we would prefer him to be. But any image of God will conceal the truth of who he is. You see, looking at that golden calf, it does portray strength. But it doesn't show God's love. It doesn't show God's mercy or his grace or his justice. The Lord had carried his people through the wilderness, but they were going to have to carry their reduced image of God. And when we make God into something less than who he is, we rob others of the opportunity to see who he is in all his greatness. We do his reputation more harm than good. We are called to make the invisible God visible through our lives. The Lord wants to be seen through his people as they worship him for who he is. We've looked at this verse before um, in 1 John 4.12 where it says, No one has ever seen God, 
But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. If we chisel off his edges and make him into a God of our own making, we prevent, prevent ourselves and others seeing who he really is. One uh, Bible commentator, commentator says this, this passage challenges us to burn and grind our man-made images to powder so that the invisible God can be seen in all his glory through his people. Well, the story could all end here, but it doesn't as we see a wave of God's grace. As I said, while all of this is going on, Moses is still up the mountain uh, in God's presence. But God sees what is happening. He knows what's happening. Look in verse 7. He says to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and, and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When we look at this from God's perspective, we can see why he's so angry. Hadn't he rescued these people from slavery, brought them out of Egypt in such a dramatic and powerful way? Didn't the people sing after they crossed the Red Sea, who is a God like you? No wonder God's anger is burning. So he tells Moses to leave him in verse 10. And he says he will destroy these people. But he says he'll make Moses into a great nation. You know, some people will do anything to get famous. Back in 2008, President Obama was visiting survivors of um, Hurricane Katrina. But suddenly, the news coverage was redirected to another news-breaking story. The parents of a six-year-old child had made a frantic call to the police to report that their son was aboard a giant homemade helium balloon, which had become untethered from its moorings at their home. The balloon, and there's a picture of it up in the 7,000 feet up in the sky. Um, the balloon, they claim, was carrying their six-year-old son and was being pursued by a helicopter, and it made dramatic TV news. Finally, the balloon landed, only for the Coast Guard to discover that there was no little boy attached to it at all. When the boy was found later up in the attic, hiding with his house, and was interviewed, he said, oh, we just did it for the show. So he spilled the beans. And his parents were jailed and later admitted that they staged it to boost their reality TV careers. The desire to be famous isn't just a phenomena in the US. We live in a culture that thrives on celebrity and the desire to be famous. But Moses was presented with an opportunity to increase his fame, to make all of this about him and his family. Because the Lord was on the brink of disposing of the children of Israel and making his promise be realized just through the family of Moses. It must have been a tempting offer for Moses. No more pastoral concerns, no more long, long sermon prep, no more PCC meetings. But Moses chooses to refuse fame at the expense of God's purposes for God's people, the Israelites. And we see Moses, the intercessor, in action. We're about to, as I said earlier, about to start a new course on prayer 
which I'm really looking forward to. Um, we're going to be doing it in our evening growth groups. And as I said, we're promoting this book about called How to Pray by Pete Gregg. And there's a chapter in the book about intercessory prayer. And a lot of people have been saying how there seems to be a move across the UK of people being called to intercessory prayer. And, and we're part of a prayer meeting that meets on a Tuesday morning of churches across the city, uh, which is a wonderful thing to be part of. And I know not everybody can, can get there, but those that, that do kind of represent the whole church. Um, and we hear that it's happening in other cities and towns across the UK as well. So if God is calling his people to be intercessors, what does that mean? How can we learn to pray in this way? In the book, Pete Gregg makes mention of the London Underground. Those of you that are Londoners or, or you've travelled on the, on the tube, you'll know, I think it's Clapham Junction, isn't it, Mike, where they say, mind the gap. <laughs> they say it in several places. Well, they certainly say it, especially at Clapham Junction. Thank you. Victoria as well, yeah. Mind the gap, and it's painted on the, 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 the platform as well. Pete Gregg in his book says that to intercede is to mind the gap between heaven and earth. And he, and he um, mentions Ezekiel 22, verse 30, that, where it says, I look for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. I think there is a call in our nation at this time for people to stand in the gap and to intercede on behalf of our nation. So what can we learn from Moses as he shuns fame and takes on the role of an intercessor? Moses is a man who has two loves. He loves God and he loves God's people. So although God has said that he's given up on his people, Moses refuses to back off. Look in verse 11, 11. it says, Moses thoughts sought the favor of the Lord his God. And then, in verse, then later in verse 11, he says to God, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? He reminds God that actually it was him that brought the people out of Egypt, not Moses himself. Adamant and defiant, he pleads with God that he might change his mind. He reminds God of his purposes, of the plan that he had, not only is he concerned for God's people, he's also concerned for God's reputation. Look in verse 12. It says, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out? To kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Next, he boldly asks in verse 12, turn from your fierce anger. Relent. Do not bring disaster on your people. He goes on to pray in verse 13. Remember your servants, Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Remember your promises. Remember your plan for God, for your people. Like a child crying out to their parents, but you promised me. He courageously reminds God of all that he promised to their forefathers. Moses teaches us what it means to intercede in prayer for our people. And this prayer is interrupted by Moses arriving at the camp. And then we have a terrible scene of bloodshed. And I don't know how you read these verses, but they're hard to understand, aren't they? They really are hard. Why should God act in this way? 
How can a God of love actually ask for this to happen? I I don't have any easy answers for this question, but I can only begin to, to have some insight into it when we look at it from Moses' perspective, being up the mountain with God, from seeing it from God's perspective. It's only as, it, it's only as we can grasp God's holiness that we can understand something of the seriousness of our sin. This is a God who won't be tamed. But let's not get stuck here, because we see in Moses' um, response a glimpse of how God has dealt with our rejection of him. Moses is down on his knees again in verse 13. It says, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And in verse 33, he goes on to pray a most moving prayer. Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. Moses loves his people so much and he's concerned for God's glory that he offers to lay down his life for them. The writer John White uh, says this, this is the acid proof of an intercessor. Moses will stand or fall with his people. And it's challenging, isn't it? Because it teaches us about prayer, that we don't just pray for those people, but we actually identify ourselves alongside those people that we are praying for, like Moses does. Does God see prayer like that in our lives, in my life? It seems amazing that the Lord does relent and he holds back from total destruction. And he tells Moses in verse 34 to lead his people to the next place on the journey. And so will you lead Moses and the children of Israel as they journey on. But we are left with a sense of the sobering seriousness of sin. Of the need to spend time with God if we want to know his transformative power in our lives. We hear once again God's call for intercessors to stand in the gap, to be willing to be so identified with the people that we pray for that we're even willing to lose our own lives. And of course, all of this points to Jesus, God's way to bring us to himself, the holy God. Jesus, who became our atonement through his death and now intercedes for us. Let's just pray together as we take a moment just to reflect on this amazing passage. Let's pray. If tonight you're waiting for God, then may God help you trust and wait for him. If you've been tempted to turn your attention away from God, May God help you refocus and return to him. If you, like me, easily begin to trust in what is visible rather than than the invisible God, may God forgive us and help us trust in him, the invisible God.
And as we all hear, the call to stand in the gap, to be intercessors, may we, by God's grace, respond to his call to pray for our nation and for our world. And may we all rejoice in God's son, Jesus, who makes it possible for us to come into the presence of God, the holy God, that enables us to live differently, who enables us to, through our lives, through the power of the Spirit in our lives, to show people what God is like. So, Lord, please be at work in us, we pray, weak as we are, inconsistent as we are. We pray that you would be at work amongst us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.